You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I want you to turn your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation. And uh, yes, starting a new series in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3 is God willing where we're going to be for the next few weeks. A new study in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. If you've got a, a, a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, just reach out in front of you. There should be a, a, a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you nearby. Just turn to nine, page 965 in that pew Bible and you, will, you should be there to uh, the beginning of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, in our new teaching series here, starting off a new year, 2023, is uh, we're just calling it, uh, we're calling it uh, uh, letters, sorry, seven letters that every church needs to read. Seven letters that every church needs to read. We call it seven letters because Revelation 2 and 3, that's what it is. They are, it's, a, it's letters from the Lord Jesus that he dictated to the Apostle John, seven letters with seven messages for seven different churches, real churches, in seven different cities in what is now present-day Turkey. And, uh, but his message just isn't, wasn't for those churches back then, but it's given for all churches to read. In fact, if you just look at Revelation 2 and verse 7, and some of the words that are written there about this message, it says there, Jesus speaking, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So yes, we're going to read and study a letter today to a specific church, the church at Ephesus from 2,000 years ago, but we can see right in the text that the message that's given here is not just for that church, but for the churches, for all of the Lord's churches to, to hear this, to read this, to study this, to internalize this. So his message just isn't for them back then, but it's for, it's for our church and it's even more personal than that, because notice at the beginning of verse 7 there, 2 and verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear. He, see how personal that is? It's to the churches, but it's also to the Christians in those churches, to the individuals, to me, to you, for us to hear. And what we're going to see in these seven letters, Lord willing, over these next seven weeks, is Jesus is addressing things that are essential for our health, for our growth, and for our perseverance. And isn't that what we desire as a church? We don't want just a great Sunday. We don't want just a great year. We want to make it all the way through victoriously, fruitfully. Well, Jesus is going to help us in these letters in particular. Now, the first letter we're going to look at today is from, it was written to, was, was a message given by Jesus to the church at Ephesus, which was probably the most prominent church in this region, in this part of the world at that time. In fact, as I understand it, the other six letters that we'll look at in weeks to come, that those, those six churches were planted out of this one. So this is kind of like the mother church. It's kind of like the Hope Oakville of the story, if you want, want to think of it that way. Um, and, and we'll notice, too, as we read these letters, that there's a, a similar pattern. Not that they're identical, but there's a discernible pattern through these letters. Each of them begins with a portrait of Jesus, like a presentation of Jesus, something about him that always fits in in some special particular way with the message that he's got for that church. Starts with a portrait of Jesus. And then uh, many times in most of the letters, he talks about positives. 
So good things that are happening in the church, good things are doing. Oftentimes, most of the time, there's also a note of a problem or problems in the church. And then he's got a prescription to address those problems. And then each of these letters concludes with a promise. So there's the pattern that we'll see. We'll see it today, and we'll see it in these letters, a similar pattern of a portrait, positives, a problem, prescription, and promise. See if you can see that as we read this together, what Jesus said. He gave this letter to the Apostle John for the church. One other thing I want to say as we read, we'll notice that some of the language is really symbolic. And uh, it's because the, the kind of writing that this is, it's called apocalyptic literature. Now, you don't even remember that phrase, but all that to say that it's a genre of writing that, is heavy, that involves heavy symbolism. And so we'll hear figures and, and things said, we wonder, what is that? And the symbols, if you want to know, if you want to hear what Jesus has to say, we'll see that the symbols don't obscure the message, but actually add power to it when we see and realize what the symbols mean. But just, you, you'll watch for it. It'll sound a little bit different, but well, let's just read it and you can see for yourself. Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. See what I mean by symbolism? Verse 2 I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary but I have this against you. So here's the problem. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Hear, hear the prescription? So the problem and then the prescription. Here's what I'm to do. Remember, repent, do. If not, middle of verse 5, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Lots of symbols there again. But remember I said that each of these letters concludes with a promise. Well, what's the promise here? Well, the tree of life, that reminds me of the beginning of the Bible, the Garden of Eden. There was a tree of life there. And what is it symbolic of? It's symbolic of life that never ends. Sustained life. Ongoing life. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were not just kicked into the garden. They were cut off from the tree, which, is, which, which really spoke to the fact that they would die. So what's this talk here about a tree of life? Well, having access to the tree of life talks about having eternal life. And what is this paradise? What, what do you suppose paradise is talking about? The paradise of God. Well, that's heaven. What's the promise here? What's the concluding promise? The promise is of eternal life. The one who conquers isn't a person who pulls himself up by their own bootstraps in, in, the, in the New Testament. It isn't somebody who, who overcomes a problem by willpower. No, the person in the New Testament who conquers is the one who trusts in Jesus. 
who looks to Jesus and sees that he's the one who's died for sin. He's the one who is buried and dead, who raised from the dead and gives me victory over sin and Satan. It's a promise of eternal life. So this is an incredibly hopeful message, but it's also a serious one. Because Jesus calls them out here for a problem, doesn't he? And he warns them. He warns them that they don't address the problem. They're going to have an even bigger problem still. I want to ask this question. You're going to put this question on the screen. And it's this. I'm not going to put it on the screen. Someone will do it for me. (laughs) How could this happen? How could this happen? In the first century... Arguably, the most vibrant place of Christian activity was in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. It was there that believers were first called Christians. It's the birthplace of Paul the Apostle, and also the birthplace of the many churches, many of the churches that he planted. We also see that it was in this part of the world that Many well-known people in the Bible lived there. Paul, for instance, Mark, Luke, Apollos, Achilla, Priscilla, even Mary, the mother of Jesus, later in her life, lived in Asia Minor. In the years immediately following the resurrection of Jesus, Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, was the hub of Christianity. It was fertile soil in which the church Grew. It was really, truly a launch pad for the gospel to the world. Many of our New Testament books were either written there or written to churches that were there. It is a place that brims overflowing with Christian history. But if you were to visit there today, and a couple of our families in our church have visited there recently... If you were to visit there today, what kind of Christian activity would you find now? Very little. 97 to 98% of the population is Muslim. Christians make up 0.2% of the population. Missiologists identify 0.03% of them as evangelical. So 0.03% of the population would hold to the the same non-negotiables that we do at Hope Niagara. Missiologists say it is 99.2% unreached. That's 84 out of 85 million people unreached for Jesus. How could this happen? How could it happen that a place that was the, the hub of Christian ministry and the launch pad for the gospel of the first century, how is it that the church took such a dive that the, the, the light went out? Well, There's historical reasons that we could point to and and delve into that, that are legitimate in the conversation. But I would suggest to you that the real reasons, the real ultimate reasons why this has happened is they're spiritual reasons. And when you read Revelation 2 and 3 to seven key churches in Asia Minor in the first century, when you read these words of Jesus, you ascertain, you see that the seeds of that deteri- of the destruction, the seeds of deterioration that led to the decline of Christianity in that part of the world were present back then in the first century. And, and we can make comparisons to Canada today, but, but for our, my purpose today is my attention isn't national. My attention is very, very local, specifically to our church here. 
Back in the fall, we preached a series on the five pillars of our church, the five practices that we believe are essential for us to prioritize if we're to be healthy and strong today and into the future. This series in Revelation 2 and 3 is really kind of the practical application of those pillars. Like, like what is it that happens when you do those things? What, what, What happens when you do those things and make those things a priority? What happens when you neglect them? We'll see that unfold for us here in Revelation 2 and 3 in our series. And really, loved ones, we are in a place today where where I believe we have good reason to be really encouraged. We are seeing God work in profound ways. We've just reflected together on a particular way just in the last month that how God is at work. And we can we have a sense of anticipation here as leaders as in this church, as a senior pastor. I have a real sense of anticipation that God is at work and there may indeed be great things to come greater things than we can imagine, but this series is designed also to call us to pay attention to things that we might otherwise neglect, things like what Jesus highlights here in this passage we've just read. Well, let's begin with the portrait of Jesus. What is it that he shows us about himself? Well, he shows us, he shows us to be someone who has authority over the church and full knowledge of his church. Authority over it, and full knowledge of it. Notice in verse one, he talks about these seven stars. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, if something is held in a, a, somebody who is royal, someone who is a king, who is a ruler, who is an authority, if someone has something in their right hand, it speaks to having authority, symbolically. So that's helpful, but what about these seven stars? What's that talking about? Well, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 20, there's a word of explanation there about what these seven stars are. Chapter 1 and 20, it says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, like, Eureka, that's what we're looking for. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, oh, bonus, both symbols are going to be talked about here. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and all God's people said, hmm, And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so that's helpful. The the lampstands are the churches. Okay, so the church of Ephesus is a lampstand. Helpful. But what about the seven stars? It says the seven stars are the angels of the the seven churches. And we see that again in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Here's what I think. An angel is, is a messenger, We believe wholeheartedly in the reality of angelic beings. We read about them in scripture, that they are real. And there's lots of passages where we read about actual angels. But you know the word angel that's translated here, angel, what it means is messenger. And there's some cases in the New Testament where this word is rendered in our English Bible as messenger, because that's how it's being used. And I think the symbol here is instructive for us about who the angel actually is. I don't believe that Jesus is telling John something that he's going to write for an angel who will then communicate to the church. No, I think in this sense, an angel is a messenger in the local church, namely the pastor, namely the preacher, the shepherd in that local church. That's what the angel is. When he's writing to the angel at church, it's not our church's angel, it's, it's me. I'm no angel but it's a messenger, it's a herald. It could be anybody else 
but the person called the pastor to preach, to proclaim God's word, that's who he's talking about. And notice, notice, there's, there's holding the stars, the, who holds the seven stars, the pastors, the shepherds, the proclaimers in his right hand. So here's the thing, follow me. The word that is proclaimed has tremendous authority. Not because of the preacher, but because of the one in whose hands the preacher is. It's a word about the authority of Jesus. He's got rights to say things. And also, not only that, he has the authority to raise us up and to build us up, and he's got authority to shut us down. And what's more, we read here, with regard to the lampstands, notice the end of verse one, it says that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. What are the lampstands again? Well, one in 20 tells us the lampstands are the seven churches. And now we read in chapter two and verse one that Jesus walks among the golden lampstands. So if, what is this saying here about Jesus and the church? It's telling us that he is near to his church, that he is close at hand. He's not far away and distant and therefore not knowledgeable, not knowledgeable of what's going on here. No, he knows what's going on here because he's near to here. He sees. It's not somebody far away saying, oh, I don't know, I have an impression about things. No, he's here. He's present. He's aware. So there's no fooling him. You can fool me. Okay? I'm, I'm easily fooled. If you are fooling me or have ever fooled me, don't pat yourself too hard in the back because you haven't accomplished much. Okay? Because I have very limited insight and knowledge of things. But Jesus is not like that. He has full knowledge of things because he's here and he knows and he sees. He sees not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it. It's a declaration here in verse 1 that Christ has authority over his church and full knowledge of his church. So what he's about to say, we better listen to. And what he's about to say, you can bank on it. It's true because he knows. So what has he got to say? Well, actually, some really positive things. I voiced a funny thing there, really, just for a second. Well, actually, at least it's not echoing. That's good. What's the positives? Notice verse 2. I know your works, your toil. So here's a church. Like, they're not lazy. They're not sitting back. They're not phoning in. No, they're working. They're laboring for the Lord. Christ commends a church that's active in ministry. Like, when it comes to zeal and working, they get an A+. Plus. Not only that, they're also, they're also sound in doctrine. I know your works and your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves or apostles and are not. So there's people coming along saying they have authority, but the church hears what they say and compares it with the Word of God and says, you don't have authority. That's wrong. And they, they're bold and courageous at that. They're, so they're sound in doctrine. They uphold the truth. And they're patient in hard times. You notice that in verse 3? I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. I'm really struck by the fact that that's in the present tense. Like when the church at Ephesus first receives this message, they are still suffering and going through tremendous difficulty. Ephesus was a very hard place to be a Christian. And can you imagine how meaningful it would have been, how encouraging it would have been to them for, to hear the words of Jesus, to say, I know, I know that it's hard, but you aren't giving up. You're trusting in me. You're pressing on. You're not throwing the truth overboard. You're not compromising in terms of doctrine. Now, when it comes to being patient in hard times, they get an A+. It's a pretty good church so far, isn't it? That's not all. Verse 6. 
He says, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Uh, There's lots of discussion and debate about who these Nicolaitans are. My theological conclusion is I don't know for sure. But whoever they are, it seems apparent that they they were false teachers who led people to live in ways that were disobedient to the Lord. And these believers hated that. And Jesus says, I like that because I hate it too. Lots of good things going on. I mean, this, this is a pretty good church, isn't it? Like, like if you lived in another, another town and your son or daughter was going there to university, you'd be like, you got to go to the church at Ephesus. You got, I mean, that is the place. Like, they're in Christianity today. They're publishing books on how to do it, how to stay faithful in hard times, the truth, right? They're out there with it. They're, their preachers are coveted all around. Like, this is the place that we, we all want to be. We're all a little, just like the little holy jealousy of the church at Ephesus. And in many ways, it was a very good church, but they had a problem, didn't they? Here we have the problem. Verse 4, yet I have this against you. When you read those words, Jesus saying, I have this against you. That's good reason just, just take a deep breath here and read this very carefully. Could Jesus have something against me? Yet I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. There's positives in this church, but there's a seed of destruction that's starting to sprout and lay roots in the church. And that seed is a diminished love for God. Christ Jesus rebukes the church where love is diminished. The phrase there in verse four, the New American Standard puts it this way, you have left your first love. Now there's some debate amongst Bible students about the object of this love. Is it Christians, like loving one another, or is it Christ? It may well be the, have been the case that there was evidences of waning love for one another. But my conviction, my belief is that the first love that's in view here is the first love of the Christian life, namely God himself. It's a love for Christ. It's a love for Jesus. Remember when Jesus was asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? He says this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's a big deal. It's a big deal, this loving, to love God. And, and what's, what's he saying here to them? He's saying, the love that you had for God is not what it used to be. And it's not because it's got better, it's because it's, it's declined, it's, it's diminished. And we ask ourselves, how does this happen? How does it happen that a person's love for God diminishes? Well, I would say it happens this way. Gradually, over time, it wanes. Often, it's, we don't perceive it. I, I don't know anybody who ever woke up in the morning and said, you know, I'm going to try to stop loving God so much. I've never heard that testimony from somebody in church. Often, even to people who can appear very serious about God and very serious about the truth can actually, with the Lord's all-seeing eyes, be shown to have a diminishing, shrinking love. That is scary. It's kind of like, 
Have you ever had this experience where you're in the grocery store with your shopping cart and you come along into the produce section, like, okay, I need some lettuce over here. Oh, yeah, the romaine. Ah, it's not looking so good. I'll get the head lettuce. Okay. And, oh, yeah, I forgot broccoli. And I got to get almonds for the salad. Now, where is that over there? Oh, there we go. And, oh, and there's Brad over in the poultry section. And then, and then you go, oh, here, let me help. You can't reach that shelf. Yeah, there, I got, I got that for you. Oh, yeah, that's good. And then all of a sudden, after a while, you're just, you turn around and you're like, where's, where's my cart? Where's, where'd that go? Did anybody have that, that experience? Yeah, where, where's my car? Or the even more embarrassing one, when you take somebody else's, not realizing, right? Dump all your junk, but, but, and walk away with somebody else's car. But where, where did my cart go? We, you didn't say to yourself, I'm going to leave this here and see if I can remember where I put it. No, you, you stopped and you, you gave your attention here and you put in your effort here and you got busy over here. And eventually you turned around and realized that you left something behind, That's what happens to Christians when it comes to their passion, their affections, their love for God. It's not that they woke up and decided they're going to love him less. It's just way led on the way. They got busy. They got distracted. They got engaged. There was pressures. And it just kind of waned and diminished. The Ephesian church did a lot of things right. But something had happened between the first generation and the second generation of the church. This church in Ephesus was about 30 years old. And mom and dad were involved in the planting of the church, and there was great love for God and great affections for Jesus. And yeah, they had some doctrinal things that they needed to work out and get clear, but man, oh man, that they loved Jesus and they loved the Lord. But then the second generation came along, and they had been taught well the scriptures, and they, they knew the truth, and they were standing strong in the word of God in terms of what it says and what it doesn't say. And, and they, they stood for these things and pressed on for these things. But something happened in the second generation is that their love had diminished. And they, it's like the country song. Don't love you like I used to. What about you? I mean, at the end of the day, I could care less about the church of Ephesus. But I do care about you. I care about me. What about you and me? Would you say that your heart is aflame with passion for God? Do you love him? In fact, that's really the question on the table today. It's a question that Jesus asked Peter three times. Peter had really messed it up. But as they came back together and as he was recommissioned to get back on the road, Jesus did not give him a doctrinal exam, did not have him recite certain truths. No, he asked him one question three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you? I wrote down this, three signs that your heart has gone cold. One, when obedience is a burden, you got a cold heart. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now those are two separate things, but there's linkage. I obey the commandments because I love him. So if I do it because I love him, it doesn't mean it's easy, but it's also not a burden. So John says in 1 John, he says that his commands are not burdensome. In other words, they're a delight because we love him. Some of us, though, have a hard time with that. We are living begrudging Christian lives, doing what we think we know we should do, but it's a drag 
like the Red Green show. They used to stand up at the end of the episode and I'm a man, I can change if I have to, I guess. Some Christians, that's their mantra. It's, I'm a Christian, I can obey Jesus if I have to, I guess. That's a cold heart, man. When obedience is a burden, when you're serving but rarely smiling. Now I understand, it's hard to smile sometimes in certain service areas, I get that, I understand. It doesn't mean that every task is pleasant, but a sure sign of a cold heart before the Lord, a diminished love, is when we serve because we feel we have to. Where ministry is a chore, and may have a pasted smile on the outside, but just putting up with it on the inside. When you're serving but rarely smiling. Third, I wrote down this. When my first passion, when my first priorities are something other than God. We've got to beware, loved ones. We, we cannot allow God to become a subject we study. But rather, he is, he is someone we savor. He's a savior we savor. We can't allow God to become a topic we discuss. But instead, a father that we cherish together. We can't allow God to be an idea that we agree with instead of the God who is glorious and worthy of all praise. We can't allow God to become just a cause for which we stand. There are many Christians, and their definition, their active working definition of Christianity is that it is a cause. It is not a cause. He is a savior we adore. We can't allow God just to be a part of our lives. You know that, don't you? He's not just a part of your life. He's the purpose of your life. But when my first passion and priorities are something other than him, that, that, that's, that is a, it's a beacon, it's a symbol, it's an evidence of a heart that's closing over, a heart that's, that's calloused. If I took off my shoes and socks right now and showed you the inside of my big toes... I won't do it because it's pretty close to lunch right now, but if I did, you'd say, oh my, look at those calluses. It's not wrong, it's just the way I was born and my feet aren't straight. And so when I wear shoes, they rub on there and what happens is I get calluses on my big toes. Now, I know you didn't really want to hear that, but the point is this. (laughs) That is what's happening to some of our hearts before God become calloused and hardened over. And I don't, don't feel the affections that I once did. And there's evidences of that. Back in February 1981, a really famous couple got engaged. Do you remember who? You know who? A royal couple. Charles and Diana. That's right, that's right. So some of you knew that, right? Some of you didn't want to say. Charles and Diana. They were engaged. And of course, there's a lot of excitement about that. The prince was engaged, and, and uh, they have this, you know, this beautiful couple. Well, she was beautiful, and you had this couple on <laughs> their first interview. And the interviewer asked them this question. I wrote down the question. He asked them, the both of them, can you find a way to sum up how you feel today? And they, they said just a, f- a few things, kind of mumbled away, looking at each other. And then the, the interviewer, kind of prompting them along, said, well, presumably love. And Diana says, well, of course. And then Charles says, whatever love means. Whatever love means. Look, I'm no relationship expert. 
But if the man you're about to marry has asked if he loves you and he qualifies his answer by saying whatever love means, he don't love you, girl. I don't care what it looks like. What are the signs in your life telling you? Like, like you may not have asked the question, but as I'm talking about loving God, you may have, without even articulating it as you're hearing this, be qualifying it, saying, well, what, what, is, what does love mean? What does it mean? Do you love him? Do you have affections for him? And if this morning you're recognizing that that love is diminished, then this is, that's what this text is for. To highlight that, to expose that, not to humiliate you or to drive you down, but to wake you up. Like there's something to attend to. You're smelling salts, to your senses, to your soul. To, hey, it's getting cold in here. Christ warns the church whose love is diminished. It's not, it's a big deal. Remember, it's the first commandment. Notice what he says. He says, remember, therefore, for from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Uh, sorry, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, notice, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And what does that mean? Remember, the church is the lampstand. What happens if Jesus removes the lampstand? Turn out the lights, the party's over. I can shut you down. That's serious. Really, Jesus, you'd shut them down? I mean, they're writing books. They're, they're standing for the truth. They're suffering for you, and you, you would shut them down? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And what is at the top of the main thing? It's to love him. It's to love him and to enjoy him. So it's serious. You can see why I'm exercised about this. Because I recognize that if we have a diminishing love, we can be very encouraged and excited today, but weeping bitter tears tomorrow. So what do we do? The prescription. The prescription is there in verse 5. We might be sick, Lord Jesus. What's the prescription? It's three things. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, and do. Remember. It's amazing how quickly we forget things, even important things, like the love of God for us in Jesus. A remedy, a first step in addressing a diminished love is to remember the love that you once had for him. And part of that involves, a big part of that is remembering the love that he has for you. That he's shown you in Jesus. You know, I mean, two friends maybe grow apart. How do you reignite feelings of affection you had for a good friend? Well, you, you remember who they are and what they mean to you. You remember, you know, like how long you've known each other and how they stood up for you and how they, they helped you and they, they supported you through school and they, they were there for you. You remember these things and something happens in our hearts. We kind of, ah, oh, yeah, you know, that, boy, that person was such a special person to me. Or about, what about your love life? Listen, I got... I got, I got a little love life going on, and in my our love life, I've got, she's like, laugh. what are you laughing for? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Anyway, I've got, what I'm not kidding about, though, is I've got at home, I've got a box that's filled with old love letters that Leanne wrote to me. She's got ones I wrote to her, I got ones she wrote to me, but her letters to me smell way better. She would even, like, she would put, if I smell, like, she, she put a little bit of her perfume on it, too. Back the old love letters, there's somebody, it's a great idea because I, I can still just sort of faintly smell it when I hold my nose up to the letter. And I can still remember 
Yeah, well, we were engaged and preparing to marry. It was a long-distance relationship, lots of positives. I remember getting letters, letters in the mail. By the way, you can't sniff emails. Just saying. <laughs> Text messages do not smell like perfume. Just saying. I can remember getting these letters in the mail and being excited, like a tickle in my chest. And you know what happens when I pull out these letters and look at them again? There's a tickle there again in my chest. You say, is that where we're after, Ross, today? Tickles in our chest? No. The tickle is affection and joy and love and even longing. Remember, where were you when God came and found you? Remember that. Remember the feeling you felt when it landed on you, that you can have your sins forgiven, that you're not defined by your past. Remember how it felt when you first realized that Jesus died for me. Go back and sniff those letters again and remember his love for you in Christ. Repent. Repent. Call it what it is. When our love for God is diminished, it's sin and needs to change. Do. Do what you did when your love was strong. Yes, it's a call to be in God's word. Yes, it's a call to talk to him in prayer. It's also a call to fellowship to delight together in Jesus. And it's a call to worship. And actually, that's what we're going to do right now, is we're going to worship the Lord. And in this moment of worship, we are going to physically, tangibly express our worship to the Lord in taking communion. My heart today is that as we do communion together, it would be a God-given means that it wouldn't just be something we eat and drink, but rather it would be a God-given means to, by the work of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, to remind us and to refresh us in the love of God for us shown to us in Jesus. And that in worshiping him, it would be a response of worship and adoration unto him. Because that's what this is really about. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, they are symbols of Jesus' death on the cross. He gave his body. He shed his blood. He died on the cross so that we could have our sins forgiven and belong to God. And in partaking of these, these emblems, we are saying something. We're saying, Jesus, you did this for me. You did this for us. And we worship you together. We are responding to you with the reminder of your love for us. We're responding with love for you. And my ambition, my desire is that as we partake of this together, that this will be God's way of beginning to, for some of us to scrape back, to peel back the calluses that maybe even in this moment now, you would begin to feel again affections to a degree and in a way you maybe haven't for a long time. This isn't going to happen by me manufacturing anything. It's going to happen by the work of the Spirit as we step forward in obedience together. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give thanks for the bread and for the cup.